Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 7, Arch Heretic, Favored Son, Rogue Priest. Who is Arius of Alexandria? Few figures in history are as shrouded in myth and legend as Arius of Alexandria. We possess no contemporaneous accounts of his life, and most of his writings have not survived to today. What we do have are a set of rumors, hearsay, and legends surrounding him. And if they are all true, Arius was the most interesting man in the ancient world. He was known as an esteemed priest, possibly even a rival to his bishop in his Alexandrian context. Arius has gone down in church history as the arch-heretic, the symbol of all that goes wrong when arrogant teachers presume to contradict the rule of faith and denigrate the divinity of God the Son. Many modern-day people have made a tragic hero out of Arius, a bold thinker who stood by the truth as he saw it, even at the cost of his home and ministry. The esteemed historian Henry Chadwick reports that Arius was a talented composer and apparently wrote theological sea shanties to be sung by the workers at Alexandria's docks. I have also heard it said that Arius was stunningly attractive, so much so that in his younger days the other priests in Alexandria complained about how all the young women seemed to be flocking to Arius's sermons instead of theirs. But just who is this extraordinary man who inspires such vitriol, adulation, and sheer gossip? Who is this first Constantinian casualty of conscience, this archetypal architect of Alexandrine anarchy, this hot priest of many an Egyptian summer? Who is Arius of Alexandria? Well, the first thing to know about Arius of Alexandria is that he is not actually from Alexandria. He's from a Roman region called Cyrenaica, which is in modern-day eastern Libya. I know, I know, it's confusing. But in the ancient world, priests and bishops get their surnames from the cities where they ministered, not the cities where they were born. It allows us to keep track of where they are when they are doing their historical deeds, even if it obscures their origins. It's difficult to know much more than that about Arius's origins. His father's name is recorded as Ammonius, good general Latin name. It's possible that Arius was Berber in ethnicity, as that was the majority ethnic group of Cyrenaica, but we can't know for certain. Arius was probably a very bright student, which was a ticket to big cities and big audiences back in the ancient Roman Empire. He probably spent some time in Antioch, since he is reported to have studied under Lucian of Antioch. He then came back to Africa and settled down to work in Alexandria, the biggest center of learning, commerce, and culture in that region. Historians report that Arius was an old man, perhaps 50 or 60, which would have been considered old by the standards of the day, when the Nicene Controversy began. He had a long career in Alexandria beforehand, and appears to have served without any significant controversy. But then a new bishop came into town, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. Now, there is a rumor that the election that brought Bishop Alexander 
also featured Arius as a candidate to be named bishop instead. Now, I can't find any historical basis for that rumor, but if he was, then I think it's pretty easy to see why he lost and Alexander won. I mean, Bishop Alexander for the town of Alexandria, it just makes sense. So Arius continued serving as a priest, and as Alexander began to preach and teach, he grew more and more frustrated. He didn't like his new bishop or the way he thought about God. Then, one fateful Sunday, Alexander preached what Arius could not abide. Alexander claimed that the son and father were of the same substance, that famous word homoousios in the Greek that he would have been preaching in. Now, we've encountered this idea of substance before in Origen and Tertullian. Alexander probably ratcheted up the emphasis on the sameness of the son and the father, but he didn't invent it. For Arius, though, this was simply too much. This was a break from the Orthodox tradition of speaking about God. And so he accused Alexander, his own bishop, of being a modalist. In other words, a heretic. That's right, friends. In the massive conflict that is about to ensue, all records indicate that it was Arius who fired the first shot. Why was this word such a big deal for Arius? We can't know for sure. We've talked a little bit about the reasons it was a big deal for the Eusebii and friends, but after the Council of Nicaea, Constantine will order that all of Arius's books be burned, which is a real bummer for church history podcasters who would like to share Arius's thoughts in his own words. To get at those thoughts, we have to resort to an old trick that historians of antiquity have long used combing through the books of his opponents, finding some passages where they quote Arius, and using those as our basis for understanding him. Now, of course, this is tricky because we don't really have a way of knowing when his opponents are quoting him directly and when they are paraphrasing or even distorting. There weren't any quote marks in ancient Greek. Nevertheless, we do have a couple of letters from Arius and one fragment of his theological poetry that have survived today. That poetical fragment is called the Thalia, and it's quite beautiful. I'm going to read you a few lines of it using the translation of Rowan Williams so you can get a feel for how Arius wrote and thought, and perhaps why, for him, this homoousius language was so terrible. So here it is, and I quote, So God himself is inexpressible to all beings, he alone has none equal to him or like him, none of like glory. We call him unbegotten because of the one who by nature is begotten. We sing his praises as without beginning because of the one who has a beginning. We worship him as eternal because of him who was born in time. The one without beginning established the Son as the beginning of all creatures, and having fathered such a one, he bore him as a son for himself. The son possesses nothing proper to God in the real sense of propriety, for he is not equal to God, nor yet is he of the same substance. I shall say in plain words how the invisible is seen by the son. It is by the power by which God himself can see, but in his own degree, that the son endures the vision of the father as far as is lawful. Or again, there exists a trinity in unequal glories, for their hypostases are not mixed with each other, 
In their glories, one is more glorious than another in infinite degrees. The Father is other than the Son in substance, for he is without beginning. By God's will, the Son is such as he is, by God's will as great as he is. From the time when, since the very moment when, he took his subsistence from God. Mighty God as he is, he sings the praises of the higher one with only partial adequacy. To put it briefly, God is inexpressible to the Son, for he is what he is for himself, and that is unutterable. End quote. In other words, what Arius wants to be perfectly clear about is that there is absolutely no being like the Father, not even the Son. Moreover, the Father is perfectly free. The Son is such as he is by God's will rather than by his own nature. To put the matter differently, the Son may look a lot like the Father, shining gloriously in the transfiguration, super wise and powerful, having a role in creating all that is, you know, being the beginning of all creatures. But that is only because the Father graciously gave the Son all those things. This is the Batman model of the Son's divinity. The Son doesn't have glory or omniscience or any other fun divine traits just by virtue of being what he is. For him, they're just kind of like fun gadgets he gets to borrow. To have them in his nature is the Father's prerogative. And not only that, the Son doesn't even really understand those divine powers, or the Father. Because, well, the Father is what he is for himself, and that is unutterable. Arius puts his thoughts together into a little argument that will drive his opponents insane with fury. It goes like this. If the father begat the son, then the son had a beginning. If the son had a beginning, then there was a time before that beginning. Therefore, there was a time when the son was not. Alexander and his allies took this to be utter blasphemy, defaming the Son by denying him the eternal existence that they thought all the members of the Godhead shared. For Arius, this was nothing more than the simple, logical conclusion of the father-son relationship. Fathers pre-exist sons, that's just how it works. Throughout all of his writings, Arius will be incredibly keen to preserve the unique and special character of the father. Now you may be wondering what the big deal was about the father being so dang special. Now, we've seen this with the Eusebii and all of their other friends. Their primary concern was to clearly differentiate that the Father was the only being who was truly eternal, uncaused, and omnipotent. Arius is basically just an especially emphatic case of this general tendency. To us, some 17 centuries later, it might seem like a very odd thing to be so concerned about. So why did Arius and everybody else in his theological party think this was so important? Well, the story is complicated, but it boils down to three basic reasons. Tradition, disdain for modalism, and their conception of what it meant to be God. Let's take each of those in turn. First is that Arius insisted throughout this whole controversy that he was doing nothing more than proclaiming the ancient traditional faith of the church. He probably had a point here. 
Throughout the controversy, there are two geographic regions that consistently back his theological vision. His home region in Libya, and the province of Bithynia, which is up in the northern coast of modern-day Turkey, and very close to the ancient imperial capital in Constantinople. And there were other supporters of the Eusebii and friends scattered all over the empire. For example, Eusebius of Caesarea was based at, well, Caesarea, which is in modern-day Palestine. So Arius had a clear base of geographical support for his ideas. He may well have thought that he was speaking for the tradition the Libyan church had received, and as the rest of the church had confirmed. There was also some historical precedent for Arius's ideas. He was likely a disciple of the venerated Lucian of Antioch, and seems to have gotten some of his ideas from this honored martyr. And Lucian wasn't the only martyr that Arius could claim. As we saw, Origen of Alexandria was very insistent that the Son and Spirit were subordinate to the Father. Indeed, as beneath the Father, as creation was beneath them. Sounds an awful lot like what Arius says in the Thalia about God differing from God by infinite degrees. Some historians have gone so far as to argue that there is a direct line from Origen to Arius, and that Arius saw himself as a good Originian continuing his Trinitarian theology. Now that particular theory has been pretty much debunked. For one thing, Origen is very clear that the Son is eternally generated from the Father, which means that there was never a time when the Son was not, and of course Arius claims the exact opposite of this. Arius also makes it clear that the Son doesn't know the Father, which would have been anathema to Origen, for whom Christ was the wisdom of God. It would also have been anathema to Tertullian with his idea of Christ as the mind of God. So Arius is not a new Origen. But of course, Origen is not the only one who describes the Son as subordinate to the Father. Most theologians and apologists of the first few centuries talked about the Son as inferior to the Father in some way, if only because the Father caused the Son's existence. So, Arius could reasonably claim to have at least partial backing from Christian tradition. And on that note, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Road to Nicaea is brought to you by Fathers for Filial Subordination, the FFS. Dads of the world, are you worried about your son? Has teenage rebellion ruined the nice, respectful young man you worked so hard to raise? Is he telling you that you wouldn't be a father without him, demanding a co-equal share of your eternal glory? We've been there, and we're here to help. Our subscription-only webinars will teach you all sorts of neat tricks to remind your son of his place. Tricks like reminding him there was a time when he was not, pointing out that he doesn't know the mysteries of your being, and more. Use promo code FFSARIUS to get your first month of membership free. Join us today, if not for your son, then for father's sake. So tradition played a large role in the theology of Arius. Now let's talk about the second factor in his theology, the fact that Arius really, really, really didn't like modalism. I mean, after all, that's what Arius accuses Alexander of, being a modalist because of his homoousian theology. Beyond the fact that it wasn't traditional, Arius thought that elevating the son to equality with the father made it impossible to differentiate them. They couldn't be two separate entities. In other words, 
Arius seems to have thought that if the father and son were exactly alike, then they were really just two aspects of the same underlying reality, which is modalism. On the other hand, if we say, like Arius, that the son is different from the father, has less power, is ignorant of the father's being, is temporal and not eternal, then there's no risk of confusing the two of them. There are most definitely two beings, two hypostases at work here, and modalism is definitely avoided. Now, this is not a slam-dunk argument by any means. Alexander and the pro-Nicene theologians who come after him are quite comfortable affirming two hypostases who just happen to have the same wisdom, power, goodness, and so on. But they will have to work harder than their Eusebian counterparts to prove that they aren't modalists. And Arius was a clever enough man to pick up on that very difficulty. So that brings us to the third reason why Arius is so keen to separate the son from the father. It's the hardest to understand, but it also sheds the most light on the theological dynamics at play. The basic idea is this. Everybody, and I mean everybody, at this time in history, takes it as axiomatic that the true God, the one eternal source of all existence and goodness, has to be utterly unchangeable, simple, and uncaused. Now, in modern times, that axiom has faced substantial challenges. If you are familiar with process theology, you know that it is based on a rejection of exactly this premise of God's unchangeability. Many strains of womanist and liberation theologies also reject this idea because they think it is tied up in patriarchal conceptions of power. Now, I'm not here to take a position on abstract theological questions like this. That's what my personal Twitter account is for. But I do want to explain why this belief in God's unchangeability and eternity was so prevalent in ancient times. So I want to give you two common arguments for this belief, one more associated with Aristotle's philosophy and the other with Plato. So first, the Aristotelian argument. Whatever else we mean by God, we think that God is the ultimate first cause that explains why things are the way they are. In other words, if I want to know why I exist, I can say, well, because my parents made me. But this only pushes the question back one step further, because of course my parents aren't self-causing beings. They too have a cause. My grandparents. And my grandparents have a cause. My great-grandparents. And on and on we can go, until we find the first human beings, who grew in a world that itself was caused by something else, which was caused by something else, and so on and so on. Now, at some point, there has to be something which causes other things, but is not caused by anything else. That something is what we call God. It's where the chain of explanation ends. Now here's the rub. If we say that God can change, then that means God can be one way and not another. But if that were true, then we would have to ask what the cause of that change is. But if anything in God has a cause, then God isn't the first cause anymore. Now, there is something else that has a kind of power over God. Something that could explain why God is blue and not red, or why God is being merciful now when God was vengeful at another time. And whatever that something is, well, that would be the real God, because that's where the chain of explanation stops. And of course, the second person of the Trinity 
sure seems to undergo change at first glance. He becomes incarnate, gets crucified, and is resurrected. That makes it seem highly unlikely to Arius and others that the Son is the highest god. Okay, so that's the first argument. But of course, not everybody is an Aristotelian. Plato is also a big name at this time. So here is the second argument that comes from the Platonic tradition. For Plato, we can only have true knowledge of what is unchanging. If I can look outside my window and see that it is raining, I may think I know that it is raining. But if I turn my head away from the window and read my book, the rain may stop, and my belief that it is raining will now be false. On the other hand, I can truly know that it is unjust to execute someone for a traffic violation, even if I am unfamiliar with the facts of a particular criminal case. Even if I am talking about someone who stole a fire truck and drove 95 miles per hour through a neighborhood, shooting fireworks off the top of the truck while blasting Taylor Swift's classic ballad love story at the highest possible volume. Even if all that is true, I know that it is wrong to kill someone simply for driving too fast. Why do I know that? Well, because justice, unlike the weather, never changes. Now, the highest god, the cause of all that is, has perfect knowledge of himself. That's one of the perks of being god. But the only way that god could have that perfect knowledge would be for god to not ever change. Since the sun came into being, that sure seems like a change, or at least a possible dependency. Similarly, that god can have nothing to do with the material world, why? Because everything that is material can change. So the Son of God, by whom all material things were made, and who became incarnate in a human body, sure doesn't seem like the highest God. Of course, there is a lot of variation within these philosophical traditions, and every single thinker will put their own spin on the arguments I've mentioned, and probably make a few more. My point is only that pretty much every philosophically-minded person in antiquity found some version of these arguments convincing. And if you found these arguments convincing, it can be really hard to figure out how Jesus of Nazareth could be the highest God. The Father's status as the highest God is the true center of Arius's theology. We know him mostly because he was criticized for denigrating the Son in the eyes of his proto-Orthodox contemporaries. But Arius didn't see himself that way. Did you notice how much of the Thalia was actually about the Father, not really about the Son? And if you were to read more of the Thalia, you would find that Arius spends most of his work explaining the Father's nature and characteristics. His teachings of the Son sort of hang off the main body, kind of like an appendix. His chief theological concern was that Alexander's teachings wound up compromising the nature of the Father by making him the equal of the Son. Alexander thought Arius denigrated the Son. Arius thought Alexander denigrated the Father. I've highlighted the motivations behind Arius's theology because this points out one of the most important and least understood aspects of the Nicene Controversy. Arius was a theological traditionalist. 
He couched his own faith in terms of fidelity to past Christian tradition. It was Alexander, not Arius, who applied the novel and unbiblical term homoousius to the relationship between father and son. And it was Arius who was concerned to preserve the traditional theology of the father's utter transcendence and unchangeability. I highlight this because it is common today to think of heresy as something that is only done by theological progressives or liberals. In fact, in many liberal churches, it's common for parishioners to describe one of their more liberal beliefs and say with a laugh, I guess I'm just a heretic. I must just be a really big heretic. If there is one lesson I want you to take from this podcast, dear listener, it is that heresy is an equal opportunity category. Tertullian was labeled a heretic in large part because of his affiliation with Montanism, which appealed to his nostalgic longings for a simpler, purer, and more stringent Christianity from his good old days. And Arius would be labeled a heretic for asserting what he saw as the traditional teaching of the church handed down from its earliest days. The question of what makes for heresy is much more complicated and much more interesting than what we typically make of it today. In fact, it's probably even more complicated than just being progressive or traditional. Because another question we have to ask is, how on earth did Arius get away with all this? Bishops, after all, are overseers. And in most denominations with bishops, the process for resolving a disagreement with your overseer is pretty simple. The bishop says, hey, that thing you're doing that I don't like, cut it out. And you either say, okay, and comply, or you don't. If you comply, the disagreement is over. If you don't, the bishop kicks you out of your ministry, and the disagreement is still over. So how did Arius manage to keep preaching his theology and start a disagreement that enveloped the whole Roman Empire when his bishop was telling him to knock it off? The short answer is that we don't know for sure. There are a lot of details that have been lost to history. The evidence we do have, however, suggests that part of the answer is that Alexandria had a relatively weak office of the bishop. We already saw some of the evidence of this in the conflicts between Origen and Demetrius. You remember that, how Origen got to travel the world and teach everywhere and even preach when he was a layperson? And when Demetrius tried to reel him in, he was laughed off by his fellow bishops. But the problems weren't just about Demetrius. During the Great Persecution, Alexandria was rocked by a controversy with a faction called the Meletians. To make a long story medium length, during the Great Persecution, there were a whole bunch of Christians, including clergy, who renounced their faith and sacrificed to the Roman gods to avoid persecution. Many of those people handed over the church's Bibles and resources. Some of them even gave the names of fellow Christians to their persecutors. These people would come to be referred to as the traditores. This is from the Latin word for handing over, and it's where the English word traitor comes from. Once the great persecution was over, some of these people repented and desired to be readmitted into the church. Now, the general attitude in the church was that God's forgiveness was for everyone, even traitors, and that these people could be readmitted given appropriate time and reparation. Meletius was the bishop of the nearby town of Lycopolis, and he strongly disagreed with this. 
and he made it everyone's problem. During the Great Persecution, the Bishop of Alexandria, a guy named Peter, went into hiding, probably reasoning that he could not be a very effective pastor and overseer if he was, you know, dead. Meletius accused Peter of abandoning his post, and was in the habit of ordaining new priests to serve in Peter's churches when they were without clergy. This is a big no-no among bishops. You do not ordain priests and send them into somebody else's territory. You may remember it's one of the reasons Demetrius was so furious that Origen had been ordained by other bishops. Now, of course, at the time, Origen was living in the region he was ordained, Meletius was ordaining priests for other regions because he didn't think those bishops were doing their job. After the persecution ended, Meletius continued to foam at discord by criticizing Bishop Peter and refusing to accept back Christians who had betrayed the faith. This is particularly bold on his part because Peter, as the bishop of the bigger and more historic city, was presumed to hold authority over him. At least Peter thought he did, because he deposed Meletius from his office as a disturber of the peace. But Meletius was a fairly charismatic fellow. He also might have been briefly exiled to do slave labor in the mines during the Great Persecution, and he had all the moral authority that comes with suffering for your faith. So Meletius and his followers, including 28 other bishops, said to Peter, thank you for your irrelevant opinion, and kept right on worshiping together. They even called their gathering the Church of the Martyrs, just to drive home who had really been faithful during the time of strife. This schism would continue all throughout Alexander's episcopate, and attempting to reconcile the Meletians with the broader Egyptian church was a constant struggle for him, as it would be for his successor Athanasius. But as is usually the case in the church, you only have as much power as other people think you have, and the fact that there was a vocal minority of Christians loudly insisting that Alexander, like Peter before him, was a bad bishop who was not the boss of them, did not do much to burnish his credentials. All of this points to the fact that the Bishop of Alexandria was in a very unusual place. Perhaps more than any other city of the time, Alexandria's bishop claimed authority to oversee and even appoint bishops of the outlying towns. Alexander's office sure looks like an archbishop or a patriarch. In fact, other bishops will address him as their papa, the same word that is eventually applied to the Roman pope. But at the same time, priests within Alexandria itself saw their bishop as just the first among equals, just some other guy. He may convene the rest of them, but he was not really their superior, and they felt no compunction at all in criticizing him. While recent bishops had attempted to assert their superiority in the hierarchy, both to their priests and neighboring bishops, both of those groups pushed back hard, and pretty successfully too. The same dynamics played out in the controversy between Alexander and Arius. After Arius's criticism, Alexander told him to knock it off. Arius did not knock it off. Alexander denounced Arius as a heretic, and convened a local council of bishops in the area to confirm his decision. The council agreed with Alexander, and Arius was deposed. Arius then appears to have attempted to run something of an opposition campaign. 
First, he tried to ignore Alexander by staying in the city and setting up rogue churches with like-minded clergy and laypeople. But after a while, Arius was persuaded to leave the city. Whether by force or persuasion is uncertain. As a charismatic and well-connected teacher, he probably had deep support networks throughout the empire. He wrote to several influential bishops, including Eusebius of Caesarea and Eusebius of Nicomedia, those famed Eusebii. His requests for support were granted, and from there things escalated. A council of bishops in Palestine, remember that's Eusebius of Caesarea's home district, well, they concluded that actually Arius was perfectly orthodox, so take that, you mean old Bishop Alexander. Alexander responded with a lengthy tome describing his doctrine and why Arius was the actual heretic, not him. Meanwhile, the Eusebii are writing letters to their supporters, stirring up help for Arius and his cause. A synod in Bithynia, Eusebius of Nicomedia's home court, further solidified some bishops behind Arius and his theology. Bishop Alexander responded with another letter, in which he had absolutely no chill. Here is an excerpt of that letter, usually referred to as the Henos Somatos, and I quote, In our diocese, lawless and anti-Christian men have recently arisen, teaching an apostasy which one might reasonably consider and label the forerunner of the Antichrist. I wished indeed to treat this matter with silence, that if possible the evil might be confined to its supporters alone, and not spread into other regions and contaminate the ears of innocent people. But Eusebius, now bishop in Nicomedia, thinks that the affairs of the church lay under his control. After abandoning his office at Beirut and, and coveting the church at Nicomedia without being punished for it, he has now established himself at the head of these apostates, daring even to write letters in all directions in support of them, hoping to drag down some of the ignorant into this shameful and anti-Christian heresy. Thus, since I know what is written in the law, I could no longer keep silent, but I had to inform you of all these things, so that you would be made aware of which people have fallen into apostasy and also of the terrible threats caused by their heresy, and pay no attention to anything that Eusebius writes to you. Now the controversy is no longer between Alexander and Arius. Now it is between Alexander and Eusebius of Nicomedia, two bishops with different jurisdictions who each think the other a disgrace to his office. Now, this situation has played itself out before, Demetrius didn't like the Palestinian bishops who ordained Origen, and they didn't like him either. But the Roman Empire is a big place, and they were in very different parts of it, so they could mostly ignore each other and let the controversy fizzle out. Perhaps, in an alternate timeline, that would have happened here. But the Arian controversy is not the same as Origen's controversy for one crucial reason. The presence of the first Christian emperor who has been very busy during these years of church infighting. It's now time to bring the Emperor Constantine into the story. As of now, he has just finished reunifying the Roman Empire under his sole command, and having finally purged the last of his rivals, he turns his attention to the church. And these bishops squabbling over obtuse theological abstractions, and he is not going to like it.
Not one bit. Next time, we're going to find out how Constantine moves the story along. He is our inevitable next stop. Or is he a roadblock on the road to Nicaea? This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.